Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. It's just a delight to be here and to share this time as we start our uh, meeting. Had a fantastic youth meeting last night, was part of. That was great. Totals are like 70 young people here. That was just an amazing thing. Very, very positive thing to kind of start things off. And we're glad that you're here. And uh, the theme for our meeting is uh, Sin Busters. How do we overcome the influence of sin? in our lives. It's something we all have to deal with, isn't it? And as we're striving to grow in Christ, it's something that's frustrating to us that Satan can have uh, that type of influence in our lives through the various avenues that he uses to try to divert our attention away from God and focus on things of this life, things that are worldly in nature. And so uh, hopefully our lessons will be geared at giving us some very practical ways to think about things and things to focus on, things to do that will help us to draw closer to God and uh, not have as much of a draw to Satan and to the world as uh, as he does. But I thought this morning, uh, to really set the tone for everything that we wanted to talk about, uh, we would discuss why we want to avoid sin, why we want to be drawn to a closer, deeper relationship to God. And so... I want us to talk just for a little while this morning on the nature of God himself. And it is because of who God is that we are attracted to him, that we should want to be like him and those qualities that he created us in his image, to be drawn to his goodwill for our lives. And so really the beginning point is if we don't have the right attitude about God, then we're going to find it very difficult to be able to strive to devote ourselves to him and to live a godly life. Respect is something that we all owe to God, isn't it? Respect. That word respect by definition means a feeling or understanding that someone or something is important. And so they should be treated in an appropriate manner due to the respect, the importance that they hold in our lives. Now, we understand this in a physical way. Certain positions or offices in life are regarded as worthy of respect, and those who serve in those offices, we want to show the proper respect for them, whether it might have to do with a a judge in a courtroom, the governor of a state, the president of the United States. We understand it is the office that they hold that makes them worthy of respect because of what they are striving to do in that position. But you know, in reality, everyone is worthy of respect because we're all created in the image of God. First Peter, the second chapter in verse 17, Peter reminds us we are to honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king or the emperor. And it's that phrase, we're created in the image of God. That's what God said, didn't he, in Genesis 1, when it came time for us to come into existence, let us make man in our image. We've probably heard that phrase many, many times in our lives, perhaps so much that we've kind of started taking it for granted. We take it casually. We don't really reflect on what that implies about the nature of God himself or what it implies about us, about who we are, and about how we should live our lives. 
But I think there's this integral link between the nature of God and of ourselves being in his image. That link should be integral to who we are, how we think of ourselves, and therefore the kind of life that we seek to live because of that. It should be fundamental to our existence in having the right attitude about God and who he is and the role that he has in our lives and from having that attitude about the kind of life that should be fundamental, primary in how we define ourselves, how we set our priorities, how we go about making our decisions and our choices in living life. Maybe the struggle that we all have against sin, our inability at times to live as we should or as we should desire, maybe part of it comes from not having a proper understanding about the nature of God, which will impact us in how we respond to God, whether we let God be God in our lives or not. I think it's always good to stop and consider who God is and what is it that makes him God anyway. Why do we attach that title to him? Why does scripture describe him as it does? Because if we don't stop from time to reflect upon the nature of God, we won't realize just how great God is, how dependent we must be upon him how vitally important it is that we're to be connected to him. So here in our class this morning, I want us to reflect on the preeminence of God and the preeminence of Christ and how that can make a difference in how we go about approaching sin, about the struggle with sin, about desiring and seeking to gain victory through having an active faith in our Lord. But I think the place to begin in all of this is understanding the God who created us, who calls us to himself, who desires us to have something better than what this world alone offers, certainly something better than what Satan wants to do to us. So let's start off very basically this morning. If we spend any time in Scripture, one of the things we're going to realize is that God is a great God. It is something that he acknowledges of himself because of his nature as God. It is something the inspired writers bring out because of their understanding who he is. I'm going to go through some passages rather quickly this morning just to emphasize to us, and this is just a sample of all that we could look at through the pages of Scripture, that define God as being a great God. The 145th Psalm in verse 3, the psalmist states, Great is the Lord, and highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Even what we have revealed to us in Scripture is not all that could be said about the greatness of God. It is what we and finite creatures are able to comprehend about God, 
and the description of him as being great, but it isn't all that there is. We haven't ferreted out. We haven't discovered. We haven't been able to, to conclude that we know all there is to know about the greatness of God. He is infinite in nature. We are finite. He's revealed himself in ways we know he is great. But the totality of that, the psalmist said, is unsearchable. In Deuteronomy the 10th chapter, in verse 17, Moses said, The Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. There's all kinds of gods in the world, isn't there? There was at a time Moses said that. There is even in our day, it's amazing, in Ephesians 5 verse 5, Paul says we're to void greed because that is idolatry. So we have all kinds of gods that we can pursue in our lives, but God is the one true and living God. He is God over all the gods humanity has imagined or created. He is the Lord of all masters that anyone might submit to in this life. He is the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. 1 Chronicles 29 and verse 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord. And you exalt yourself as head over all. Well, that isn't arrogance on God. Did he not create the heavens and the earth? Doesn't everything proceed from the power of the word that he spoke? Isn't it from him that all has come into existence and that everything is maintained? And so it is not hubris on the part of God to have that said of himself. It is fact. Romans, the 11th chapter, beginning in verse 33. Paul said, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Does God need anything from us? Can we come up with something that God hasn't already created? Can we explain something to him he doesn't already know that it puts him in debt to us? For from him and through him and to him are all things. And so Paul concludes, to him be the glory forever. Amen. 1 Timothy 6, verses 14 through 16. Paul reminds Timothy that he should keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The description spoken of of the Father is the same as that of the Son, isn't it? Because they are both deity. As Jesus said in John 10 and verse 30, I and the Father are one. It shouldn't surprise us that the nature that God possesses and what is said of him is true of Christ alone. 
He states he alone possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable light, which no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Well, there are many other passages, as I said, that we could look at that emphasize to us the greatness, the majesty, the glory, the splendor, the honor that is due our God. God is a great God. Now, how do we understand it? It's one thing just to say that, but, but how do we understand it truly is true of God? What is revealed to us in Scripture that would allow us to reach this conclusion? Well, let's think of some of the expressions of God's greatness that we see revealed in Scripture. Number one, we know God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. This is part of what defines him as God. These are qualities that he must possess if he truly is God, if he is deity. And he does reveal these things. God is omnipotent. That means he possesses all power. Certainly we understand that when in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and we know that came about by just him speaking it into existence. But in Matthew, the 19th chapter, remember after the rich young ruler had come to Jesus, Jesus discerned that, yes, he had kept the, the commandments, but it was more from rote than it was from heart, that his possessions meant more to him than God did, than anything else did. And he told him, if, if you will sell your possessions, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. But he couldn't do that. He grieved because his possessions meant more to him than a relationship with God did. And Jesus began talking about how wealth has that deceptive ability to make us think that, that we are masters of our own destiny. We, we are where we need to be. We can do whatever we need to do. He said it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And just so there's no mistaking what Jesus was saying, in the Gospel of Luke, when Luke records this event and that word he uses for needle, he's talking about like a surgical needle. I've heard it said, well, there was this particular gate in Jerusalem. It was a very narrow gate, and a camel would have to get down on his knees to try to wiggle its way through that gate. And that's what Jesus was talking about. And Luke gives us a divine commentary on it and explains, no, try sticking a camel through the eye of a literal needle. Well, it's no wonder when the disciples heard this, we're told they were astonished. And they said, then who can be saved? Jesus said, verse 26, with people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. It's because he is omniscient. In the 147th Psalm, as the psalmist stops and reflects, on eternal things in verse 5. Great is our Lord, abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. He is omniscient. There is nothing that he does not know. That has to be true of a God that creates everything. How could he maintain our universe if there's some things about what he created that he doesn't understand? I sit down at a computer. I marvel when the thing will actually come up and start working for me. Uh, I, I have a healthy distrust of Windows. 
And uh, when, uh, when I had an associate minister, he used Apple, and I grew to hate it because I was in his office trying to fix the things that messed up on us as much as I was with my own computer. But that's not true of God, is it? He understands every single detail in regards to the universe that he has made. His understanding is infinite. And then go over to the 139th Psalm, and we'll pick up in verse 7. David here states, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, if I, if I go to the highest of heights, the deepest of depths, if I go to the furthest most place one can imagine here in this existence, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. God is omnipotent. You can't say that about any human being. God is omniscient. You can't say anything about who he has created. He is present everywhere at all time. What a way for God to show his care and concern. Don't we want a deity like that? Don't we want a God who is powerful enough to be able to help us through whatever mess we may get in life? Don't we want a God who is infinite in knowledge and knows the solution to every problem we might have? Don't we want a God who is with us no matter where we are so that he can protect us and guide and help and direct and lead our lives? God's greatness is manifest not just in these qualities, but the fact that he is eternal. He is not time-bound as we are, but he is eternal in nature. 1 Timothy, the first chapter, and with verse 17, Paul states, To the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory for how long? Forever and ever. Why? Because that defines the nature of his existence. Or think about Hebrews 13 and verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday. What about today? Is he... Consistent who he is today as he was yesterday? Yes. And how long will that last? Forever. Today, yesterday, forever. He is eternal. And something else to consider is that God is self-sufficient. When we were born, were we self-sufficient in nature? I mean, you know, uh, when we had our, our first child, our daughter... She could, it seemed like she might have been. I mean, she seemed so, uh, so mature from even as a little child. And we thought, boy, this is great. You know, she, she, you don't have to, 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 to run around. She listens to you. She understands. You can explain things. Let's have another one. And then our son came along. And then I said, we're done. I discovered there really is a difference between boys and girls. But God is self-sufficient. None of us are. When we're little, what has to happen? We're born. What happens if we just laid there? We'd die. We need somebody to feed us. We need somebody to clothe us. We need somebody to hold us, to know that we are loved. 
We need direction. We need so many things. The world would have us think we are masters of our own destiny, but we're really not. We are so dependent through the course of our lives on so many individuals. God possesses infinite riches of being and wisdom and goodness and power in and of himself. He is perfectly complete in his own being. He needs no one to provide or to care for him. He is totally sufficient in himself as to who he is. Jesus said in John the fifth chapter in verse 26, just as the Father has life, Anybody have to give that to him? Anybody have to sustain it? Anybody have to provide that? He has life in himself within the sphere of his own being is everything necessary for his existence because he is God. And so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. So scripture tells us God is a great God and scripture reveals why he is such a great God, why we should have that kind of estimate of him as God. So what are the implications? How should this play out in our lives? And if we understand God is a great God, not just because of self-declaration, not just because he says he is a great God, but, but even the universe he has made, even we as humanity, everything points to the reality that he is a great God and he has revealed that greatness in a variety of ways. How does that impact who we are, how we think, how we live? God is glorious. He is far above and beyond everything that is created in any and every aspect that can be conceived. You know, they say there's a couple of things necessary with regards to the physical being in existence. Does something ever come from nothing? What was there in the beginning? Before God ever spoke anything to existence as far as a physical universe, what was there? Nothing. There was nothing there. So something beyond the physical realm had to create it, yes? Because if the physical was nothing, I mean, evolution says something came from nothing, but that is not true. They are forced to say that because if they don't, they don't have anywhere to go as to how things came to be, except by acknowledging a creator, which they don't want to do. So God is separate and apart from the physical universe that he's made. Pantheism is wrong. He is not in it. He is over and above it. And he also has to be a powerful God, doesn't he? To be able just to speak. And things happen. I mean, you begin to understand what captured the minds of the apostles. You remember in Luke, the fifth chapter, when Jesus put out in the boat and, and used it as a platform to speak to all the crowds on the, on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee? And how uh, Peter, Andrew, James, John, they'd been fishing all night, hadn't caught anything. And then when Jesus gets through teaching, he tells John, says, or tells Peter, just drop your nets over on the side of the boat, you'll have a great catch of fish. And how did Peter respond to that? Peter was Peter. I love Peter. He's so human. It helps me to understand God still has a place for me if he can use Peter. Peter said what? 
okay, you may be the Messiah, which Peter was probably thinking physical Messiah, you know, you're going to be a king and you're going to reign and you're going to do all that stuff. But we're the master fishermen, and we know how to fish, and we've done it the way it should be done, and we caught nothing. But because we love and respect you, we'll do what you say. What happened? Man, he never caught so much fish in all of his life. And how did he respond to somebody that knew that and could tell him how to do that? Get away from me. I am a sinful Man, it made an impression on him, and it should on us. In society today, how do most people view God? What do we think about God? The, say the word God, and how do a lot of people, and I'm talking about in the Lord's church, but just in society as a whole, what do they think about God? Foolishness? He's just... He's love, he's, he's kind of this grandfather kind of image, you know, that he, he cares for everybody, but he doesn't have the guts to say anything against anybody. So he just approves and goes along with whatever we want to do. Patience. Patience. And he is a God of patience. Why are we glad he's a God of patience? We have decided in our society pretty much this book, we don't need it anymore. We don't need it. Because we figured out, this is another deception of Satan, we figured out, you know what? Whatever we want to do, God is good with that. He just supports us no matter where we go or what we want to say or do or how we engage. He's he, he just going to approve it, and if we do something that's wrong, he's going to be there to clean up the mess after us. And, and no matter how we live... When we die, guess what? It's kind of like, you ever play this game, hide and seek when you were a kid, and there were always some of the kids that really could hide pretty good. And you finally give up and you sh would shout out, oh, now don't make me feel this old. <laughs> ollie, ollie, oxen free. Meaning, I quit, come in, you know, you win. So when life is over, no matter how badly we behave, God's going to go ali ali oxen free. Everybody gets in. That is a God Satan wants us to believe in. But it's not the God who is our creator and the one whom we should respect and reverence. There's a term used in the Old Testament. The word for glory oftentimes comes from a word which means to be heavy. And it was connected with weight because the glory of kings was often connected with gold. So the more gold you had, your status among other kings, what? Yeah, you, you were pretty good. Uh, it's kind of like a bumper sticker, well, the one with the most toys wins. If you were king with the most gold, you had to be pretty powerful. You had to be pretty great to be able to have that. It, it could literally refer to the actual number of possessions you had. And I think that's the way it's used in Daniel 4 and verse 30. You remember when Nebuchadnezzar was on top of his palace and, and uh, Daniel had already warned him, don't get too proud. You're not going to like what happens if you get too proud. But he's surveying his kingdom and he sees 
all of the beautiful buildings. He probably could look on one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the hanging gardens there in Babylon. He could see everything that he had commissioned to be done. And he says, isn't this Babylon the great? Isn't it from the work of my hands? Isn't it for my glory? Now, as far as Kingsworth's concerned, at that point in time, he was top dog, wasn't he? But what happened when he wanted to exalt himself above God? Yeah, he lived like an animal for seven years. And when God gave him his sense back, evidently he remembered how he had lived during that time. And guess who got the glory after that? God. He turned to give praise to God. The term came to be used figuratively in what we count as being weighty or what we consider as important or valuable. Over in the book of Proverbs, in the 21st chapter, and with verse 2. Solomon records, Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but who counts what is weighty? The Lord weighs the hearts. We can think we're pretty smart and we're pretty special and we're pretty significant because of how we view ourselves or what we possess or things of that nature. But the truth of the matter is God needs nothing from us for his existence. We are not his equal. We do not get to dictate terms to our creator how things should be. You remember in Romans 11th chapter, Paul says, what right does the piece of clay have to say to the potter, why did you make me this way? We do not get to tell God how to be God. He is not dependent on us for our existence. So if God is eternal, if everything proceeds from him, if everything is maintained by him, then we are completely and totally dependent upon him. If this is the nature of the God who created us and sustains us, and, and since we're on this subject, what else did he do we couldn't do for ourselves? He saved us. Where would we be if the great and awesome God who created all things and provided us such a wonderful place for our existence, one, one video has called it the privileged planet. Have you ever, you ever seen the Milky Way galaxy and where the earth is in it? And scientists have figured out there's only one spot in the whole Milky Way galaxy that is conducive to life. Guess where Earth happens to be? In the big middle of that spot. Little teeny tiny part on the outer rim of the Milky Way galaxy. It's the only place in all of the galaxy where life, carbon-based life, is able to exist. Where there's a planet that provides the atmosphere and all the things necessary for life to exist. It can't be found anywhere else in the Milky Way galaxy. And as far as our searching out and looking for other places, has it been found anywhere else? 
Nope. This is it. So aren't we glad that this creator not only brought us into existence and provided us such a wonderful place to live and sustains it for our existence but loves us enough he sent his son to die for us. He's vested in us. He cares and concerned over us physically and spiritually. What should our response be? We must acknowledge the greatness and the majesty, the glory, and the honor inherent in God is God. When we drop our estimate down of God, it opens a door to the lie of Satan that we're pretty special in and of ourselves and we can do pretty much whatever we want to do and God, if there really is a God, will be okay with that. Unless we keep him on the throne of our hearts, then we open ourselves to fall victim to the temptations of Satan. The appropriate response to how great and to how magnificent God is in us as his creation is, how should we respond? God says, I, I created all things. I made you in my image. I sustained you. I have provided all things necessary for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1 and verse 3. So what should our response to be? Well, thank you, God. That was very thoughtful of you to do that. I think we'll take it over on our own now. That's what some people think. But really, how should we respond to God? Praise. Praise. Understand we're not really worthy. We haven't done anything to deserve what he has done. And since he made me and he knows me and... and he has said eternity in our hearts, but how much of eternity do we really understand? Do we have anywhere near the intelligence God has? So the best thing I should do is to live in submission to him, to put him first, to humble his will over my will. That shouldn't surprise us then when Jesus said, in Matthew 16, if we want to follow him, the first thing we have to do is what? Deny yourself. Take up your cross, and then we can follow him. But the first thing we have to do is get ourselves out of the way because we're only going to mess things up. And Peter was a great example of that, wasn't he? Jesus was explaining who the Messiah really was, what he was going to do. I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem. I'll suffer many things at the hands of the Jews. They will put me to death. I'll rise on the third day. Peter stopped listening when he heard they'll put me to death because the popular view of the Messiah was he never was going to die. I mean, he's going to take care of our needs. He's going to keep the enemies at bay, uh, and he'll always live to do this for us. So Jesus said, I must be put to death, and Peter goes what? Come here. Come here, Lord. I don't like that plan. That's discouraging us. That, that's not the way it was told to us. This can't be right. And Jesus said, now, in his heart, don't you think he was sincere in saying that? But Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He wasn't the literal embodiment of Satan, but 
Satan sure was influencing him, wasn't he? When we exert ourselves and what we think's right and what we think is best and God doesn't factor into that, it will always get us in trouble. And Peter needed redirecting. You know, even the Son of God, our Savior, had to take a role of submission in the majesty of God by becoming flesh if he was going to fulfill his purpose. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11. What a fantastic passage of Scripture upon the majesty of Christ, but the willingness he did what? He didn't consider equality with God something to hold on to. He emptied himself. He let go that he might be in the likeness of man. And how far did he go to accomplish God's purposes? All the way to the cross. How dare we say, I got it figured out. If we truly, I get five minutes minutes or what? Well, that's not enough, but it'll, it'll do. <laughs> if we truly grasp what the greatness of God is all about, if we realize everything that he is and all that he does for us, if we truly want to be beneficiaries of his magnanimous blessings that he wants to bestow to us, and we have to acknowledge his greatness, which first and foremost means we humble ourselves to him. We don't have time for it, but in Isaiah the 6th chapter, verses 1 through 8, remember when Isaiah, serving as a, a, a prophet of God, seeing God perhaps in a way he had never conceived of before, he saw the Lord, high and exalted, seating on a throne, his robe filled the temple. Seraphim, who, this is the only time we find them in Scripture, and, and their purpose in this point was to stand in the presence of God, and they were shouting out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. What did Isaiah do? Woe is me. He understood the greatness of God. And he was willing to acknowledge his need to be in submission to him. And what did God do? When, when Isaiah humbled himself before God, what did God do? Symbolically, he took a coal from the altar because he said, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. He took one of those coals from where the sacrifices for forgiveness would be offered, those animal sacrifices, touched his lips and said, you are now clean. And then God says, who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. Boy, when we let go of self, God sure can fill us up, can he? And make us understand that it's in him where it's where our greatness lies and where our significance and our importance. And when we grab hold of him and yield to his will, that's where we find the good life. So I'll close with this. What image do we have of God? Yes, he is a loving, caring, providing God for us. He's all of that. He's more than that. But God is not us. He is the great 
and powerful creator and sustainer of all things with whom we have to do today and eternally. And so as we go through these lessons to help us better understand how Satan tries to tempt us with sin and ways to overcome it, we need to engage our minds, we need to engage our hearts, we need to engage our lives to acknowledge and always remember just how great God is who calls us. And I'll close in Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29, where the Hebrew writer reminds us, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude which we may offer to God an acceptable service. How? With reverence and awe. It should influence every aspect of how we live, for our God is a consuming fire. He is great. He is majestic. And he loves us. And what he does is for our well-being today and eternally. Well, keep that in mind as we go through the course of our lives and how we face what's going on in life. We'll do so much better in equipping ourselves to say no to temptation and to cling to the God who genuinely loves us and wants us to be with him in heaven. Isn't that an amazing thought? To be with God for eternity. That's where we want to be. That's what these lessons are about. I'm glad you're here. I hope we all are encouraged by uh, what the scriptures have to say to us on this and, and that this will kind of lay the foundation of where we want to go with this. Always remember, if God is for us, who can be against us? Thanks for your time and attention this morning.